0: And welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer, Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of
1: Fame. It's an inside the park home run, Doug Bill.
0: Mike Chard is
2: coffee at Starbucks with a double latte, skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the, the human ride. elements of <laughs> Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs>
0: Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the athletic and as always I am joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, homeschool vice principal (laughs) and distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, really excited about this show because we're going to get to talk to one of our favorite people the executive producer of The Last Dance, man, oh, the yeah. amazing Mike Tolan.
2: Yeah, I'm fired up about that. And and you know, his dad was a neighbor of mine in West Conshohocken, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so um, yeah, and, and uh, I've had a lot of times, including my glorious Academy Award performance in Summer Catch. <laughs> That he uh, directed, produced, so I'm very excited to kick around some things, especially with The Last Dance uh, uh, wrapping up this week.
0: Yeah, I bet you are. I'm just going to let you know right now that we will be asking for his review of Field of Dreams. Oh, no. You know, Clearly, I'm not going to let go of this until I wear (laughs) it down and convince you of the deep meaning of Field of Dreams in our world. Fair enough. I can tell you're ready. I'm
2: ready. I'm ready. Totally ready.
0: (laughs) Okay. Before we talk to Mike Tolan about Michael Jordan and about what it was like to produce a movie that starred that charismatic new acting star, Doug Glanville, uh, we need to check back with the vice principal of the Glanville School to see how things are going. Uh, Last time we talked to you, it sounded like things were on the verge of reeling out of control. So what's new in the Glanville School, Doug? Well,
2: I've added to my list of uh, skill sets, uh, building basketball hoops. Uh, so it has not o- uh, fallen over yet. So, you know, that gave me some credibility in the school climate. Uh, and uh, so I feel good. The the thing, I guess, in a baseball sense, the best way to think of homeschooling is like Major League Baseball's attempt to cure this whole pace of game issue. Uh, we know how fruitless that has been. And, uh, but you keep trying, you keep teaching, you keep going out. He, people could be eating Cheetos at the computer, showing up in robes and like, you know, no socks. I mean, this is just fair game. You wouldn't do this in regular school, of course, but at homeschool, <laughs> you know, the the rules are just kind of out the window. So with pace of game, we've tried, you know, raise the strike zone, stay, keep one foot in the box. It sounds good. We keep trying. Uh, and then it just sort of falls apart. So that's kind of what homeschooling is like in, uh. At least in
0: my household. <laughs> you know, everybody's walking around right now eat, eating Cheetos at the computer, <laughs> half-dressed. Like, that's just the world. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think... I don't want you to deduct any great points for that stuff. <laughs> right. Okay?
2: Um,
0: here at our house, I made a dramatic new discovery last week of the greatest invention in the history of our planet. I used to think the contenders for that were the wheel... Right. The printing press, right. the internet. Don't forget the, the hot, dog launchers, hot dog launcher. Hot launchers.
2: dog launcher. dog yep. launcher way up there. High up there.
0: Yeah, but now now I know better. I know number one, Doug, the greatest invention in history. It's a miraculous substance by the name of WD 40. <laughs> I, I seriously have no idea what's in there. I have no idea what the WD stands <laughs> for. It could be like whale dancer. <laughs> right. I don't know. Uh, Seriously, I I don't know anything about it. But here is what I've learned about WD-40. It can fix anything. (laughs) And since I'm a guy who can fix nothing, this is a major breakthrough for me. Uh, Just to let you know, we, we had a toilet handle that kept getting stuck. We had a faucet in the kitchen that kept dripping. This went on for weeks because I I don't know what to do. I I can't remember whose idea it was to squirt a little of that WD-40 into these things, but I tried that, Doug, and presto, this stuff that was not working, that would never work again, suddenly was working. And my wife, who knows how useless I really am at any kind of hassle repair, she now says stuff like, I am so thrilled with you. Okay, so it. these are words that wives yes. just don't say enough, now, right? I hear you, and I,
2: I think I'm going to spray WD-40 on my lower back, uh, lumbar L4 L5. There you uh, go. Since it works on everything, it might help up, you know, bulging disc and things. So, you know, I I think that's a great idea. It could be a great massage, you know, tool. I I don't know. I
0: I sound. I'm I'm sold. I'm totally sold. You might want to consult the user instructions before you <laughs> spray that on your back. But just saying. You know, I, I actually thought this might be a fairly new product, so, th- so I did look this part up. How many years would you guess WD-40 has been around? I'm going to go
2: 612. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. It, you're a little on the high side.
2: Little high. It's not like Battle of Hastings, and in 1066.
0: 612. That would have been... The year fourteen oh eight, right? The, so Columbus yeah. was using WD forty on the, <laughs> the
2: Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Yeah, he yeah. got stuck, you know, just in case the, <laughs> the refrigerator
0: got stuck, which was all salt and <laughs> dry ice. <laughs> yeah, his refrigerator never got stuck. Um, all right, the answer is not six hundred years. It's, but it is almost seventy years. Yeah, uh, stuff was introduced in nineteen fifty three. and somehow word of it did not reach me until I got (laughs) stuck in my house and had to attempt to fix stuff. So what a moment. All right, before we bring in Mike Tolan, uh, time once again to thank the people who have kept our country going over the last couple of months. Thanks to the doctors, the nurses, everyone on the medical front lines. Thanks to all the people who work in grocery stores and pharmacies. Thanks to the delivery people. Who are now our links to that world we once lived in. So many thank yous to so many people these days. And you know what, Doug? We're among the lucky ones. Uh, we can still work. We can still do some semblance of what we do from home. So for those of us who are in that situation, I feel like it's important to do what we can to help people who aren't as fortunate. Uh, the Starks gave last week to fill abundance which supports food banks in the Philadelphia area where we live. And we're always looking for deserving charities that provide assistance to people in need right now. It's a really tough time for our country. So if you have a cause that you out there think is awesome, tweet it at us. Maybe we can help spread the word on this podcast. Jack, it's time to welcome a longtime friend of both of ours to Starkville. It's the great filmmaker, and executive producer of The Last Dance, Mike Tolan. Now I go back so far with Mike. I remember when he was making Phillies highlight films <laughs> back in the nineteen eighties. That was actually pretty much your first
1: dance, right, Mike? <laughs> I was pretty close to it. I, I was so lucky. My rookie year at MLB Productions was nineteen eighty. Oh, guess what? The Phillies are in the World Series. <laughs> oh wow! Let's see if I can get the writing assignment to write the narration for. What turns out to be Vince Scully. Oh my goodness. 19- yeah, it's only the, the the 97th year of the Phillies franchise, and I'm getting to be right there, like in the dugout, when uh, when the ball fell off Bob Boone's glove and Pete Rose caught it in the bottom, of, in the top of the ninth of game six. Like, I, I could have almost stolen it from Pete. I was that close to it. <laughs> you would have gotten eaten by a <laughs> detector.
0: That's a whole other story. Uh, Doug, you and Mike shared a Hollywood moment, right? A couple of decades ago. I, last I heard, Doug considers Summer Catch, uh, specifically the scenes he was in, yes. to be Mike Tolan's finest cinematic uh, achievement, uh, right, us. Doug?
2: Absolutely. I'm still waiting for my Academy Award. Uh, yes. And uh, yeah, Freddie Prince Jr. and I are, are cool because of uh, our, our movie connection. Uh, I thought I played myself <laughs> very authentically. <laughs> And I'm um, <laughs> looking forward to uh, getting a little more background on Summer Catch because uh, it's been been well, quite a while. <laughs> oh
1: my God! Well, uh, the only thing where I have to correct you, Jason, is it was really actually a Cincinnati moment, not a Hollywood moment. <laughs> this is
2: <true>. It was <laughs> Shh, this- quiet.
1: <laughs> oh, um, but 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 for those who don't remember, maybe, maybe I shouldn't spoil it. Maybe people oh, will go out and rent it or yes. get it on
0: a. Doug's going to be all over this. I guarantee. But, oh yeah, I'll be but, all over this. I mean, the only question that matters is. Is there any chance that The Last Dance has now eclipsed summer catch in your personal rankings of greatest things you've ever been involved with?
1: Uh, I hate to break it to you guys, but many things have eclipsed (laughs) summer catch. No, Uh, I do not accept it. (laughs) Now, wait, do you remember your cohorts, Doug? I believe we had... Pat the Bat playing first base. Yes. Is that possible?
2: I think he got cut and, out. I think he got cut out, but yes. Pat-
1: and Levy, Le- Levy was behind the plate playing himself. Yep, Lieberthal. Okay. And Freddie Prince Jr. in Phil, full Phillies regalia yep. is on the mound for what everybody thinks is going to be the hero moment. We get Ken Griffey Jr. stepping in. Yep. <laughs> and we have John Miller calling the play-by-play. And I'm not going to say what happened, nope. but Doug, you were. Front and center in the
2: action. I was, and uh, I, I I I sold it well. I felt very good. And, and when you zoom in on a tight Freddie Prince Jr., you there, you see me right there, just getting set up and everything. Yeah, it was uh, uh, very cool. Set up,
1: uh- So is this one and done for your acting career? Yeah,
2: you know, it's interesting. I I found an old email where I think I have unclaimed assets from, like, the SAG membership. So I actually just (laughs) filled out a form and sent all my paperwork in again. So I'm (laughs) waiting for Summer Catch 2 to just bring it back and uh here's the thing
1: about that in in the crazy hollywood universe where everything old is new again where we're now doing varsity blues again as a quibi series yeah there's been talk i'll just say there's been talk about a summer catch revival as a series uh, wow
2: yeah cape cod is so nostalgic and beautiful and i i think there's a lot there i mean that, that summer you know i played 1990 and uh I mean, it was just a majestic experience. I mean, just baseball. And, and I took my kids not too long ago. We went up there and went to a, a Cape League, so a Cape League game. Yeah. yeah so I, I let me know. I'll I'll make a cameo with my award and tow.
0: No. no. <laughs> Mike, you are not allowing him into this series. That is uh, not
1: happening. <laughs> well, <laughs> we could be negotiated. To, to be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's see if we can get baseball out on the field this summer for real, and then we can worry about Cape Cod 2021. Yeah, yeah we'll try to get to that. Now, I
0: should mention, because I didn't know we were going to wind up doing 10 minutes on Summer Catch, <laughs> that Mike Toland has worked on many incredible projects, did fantastic documentaries on Hank Aaron, on Allen Iverson, did the incredible 30 for 30 in the old USFL, and many more. Gave us the classic TV series Arliss. Mm-hmm. Films like Coach Carter, Radio, and Varsity Blues. But Mike, I feel like now you have done something that I I would refer to almost as magic, because you turned a guy who hasn't played basketball in almost 20 years into the sporting focus of the entire country. I mean, for the last five weeks, Michael Jordan's been bigger than every active athlete in America. The Last Dance has been like the Super Bowl. It's that thing that millions of people had to interrupt their lives to watch. And so, Mike, I'm sure you were aware of this phenomenon. I'm just curious, do you feel like you've ever been part of a project like this that had this kind of hold on so many people?
1: Uh no, in a word. <laughs> uh <I can laughs> Quickly and easily, without hesitation. But, you know, you used a phrase there more than any other active athlete. Well, Jason, there are no active <laughs> athletes. So, <laughs> that helped. That helped. Um, look, it's it's uh, it's this weird form of opportunism. The last thing you're intending to do is take advantage of uh, this dire straits that we're all in now. But there we were finishing up what has been a nearly five-year process heading toward what was scheduled to be a June 2nd launch for this 10-part series. And it's, uh, well, it's March 11th and Rudy Gobert, okay, that's where it all begins, right? Adam Silver shuts down the NBA, the Final Four is not going to, first it's not going to be played with fans, then it's not going to be played at all. And then by the weekend, it was Friday the 13th, fittingly. And then by the weekend, we're all shut down. We're sheltered in place. I'm back in, I fly back from New York where I was visiting my daughter. Um, I come home, nobody wants to do anything. Wait, wait, I've been away for a few weeks and I'm like ready to catch up. And everybody's already scared to death to go out of their homes appropriately. Um, And there's a clamor that starts building among all of our constituencies. Now, a lot of talk has been made about all of our partnerships you know, it's Mandalay Sports Media, which I run with Peter Guber. Um, we're the production company. Um, we're partners with the NBA, which shot the footage from The Last Dance in the 97-98 season. So they have, you know, they have, they have the treasure trove um, under lock and key. And then there's Jump, Inc., which is Michael Jordan's partners, SD Portnoy and Curtis Polk. Um, and then there's Netflix and ESPN who are sharing the distribution rights. And then there's our director, Jason Hare is holed up in a downtown Manhattan edit suite with five, count them, five different editors, all working on different segments from 10 different shows. And they're saying like, okay, it's time to run the two minute offense. So uh, wow. we, we got together, all of us, that was, that was pre-Zoom. So we were just on a good old fashioned phone call. And we basically did the math. It's like, how soon can we get this going? We want to run two a week. We said, well, we better sort of make sure we can finish these in time. Um, <laughs> as you may have heard, we didn't actually finish episode 10 till last Thursday, like three, four days ago. Oh, wow, my so God. we kind of, so we said, all right, if we back up from May 17th as the finale for nine and 10, we can work our way toward April 19th, which became the launch. Um, and then it became sort of an old school um appointment viewing kind of situation. Um no binge watching. So many people said to me, Oh come on man, slip slip me the links or slip, slip me DVDs. <laughs> I can't wait I want to watch them all. But how great, I mean, really, uh as you guys know, I'm a I'm a I'm all about community, about family and friends. That's why I'm such a sports guy because it's such a, a bonding thing to be, you know, I I've I've emails with uh Philly fans and Sixer fans and Eagle fans. Um, so to have all these people saying, thank you for bringing my family together. Thank you for creating appointment viewing again. We haven't done this forever. Sunday night at nine o'clock, we're all getting together, sitting on the couch. And then there's the water cooler has reemerged, right? Monday morning. (laughs) Everybody's talking about (laughs) (laughs) virtually.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, well, of course. Right. So, um, it's humbling. It's gratifying. It's, you know, beyond our wildest dreams and expectations. It is, uh, yeah, it is, it is, um, we all feel very lucky to have been a part of it.
0: Yeah, it's been special. Uh, I'm proud that I know you because <laughs> this is just incredible. <laughs> hey, man, you're,
1: you're the Hall of Famer. Come on, man. I'm proud to
0: know you. Yeah, a well, Mike and I are both in the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, So we, we've got that bond. Uh, hey, I, I want to ask you a question that I asked Bob Costas last week. There was a quality to Jordan and his obsession with greatness that to me was, and actually still is, absolutely mesmerizing. Now, you were in his presence as this was being made, so you got a whole different perspective on it. How would you define that mesmerizing quality to Michael?
1: Well, it was said, or at least it was alluded to last night by Mark Vansell, who used to work for the Bulls and then became one of Michael's biographers. Um, I think he did rare air and a couple of other things. Really smart. Good guy. I know Mike. Sure. And he he talked about presence. He talked about Michael's singular focus, his ability to be completely in the moment in an age where we're all so distracted by our devices, where we're always multitasking um, where there is at the same time that that's happening, a real effort to get people to understand the concept of mindfulness, as as Mark was saying last night, whether it's meditation or yoga or, you know, listening to Ram Das, um, but just focusing on he, be here now, as Ram Das said, forgetting the past, the future hasn't happened. Um, and that is his mental gift that uh, alongside his incredible physical physical gifts was really the separator. So in my very limited experience, you know, we had – we had three long sit-down interviews, which comprised eight or nine hours. Jason Hare did the interviewing. Um, we were there, the producers were all there. Um, we had several other social moments. Um, you shake hands with Michael Jordan. He looks you in the eye. Uh, he makes you feel special. He, he can talk to you about whatever, small talk, not afraid of big talk. Um, uh, he's there. He's not looking over your shoulder. or He's not you know, figuring out who else he should be talking to instead you saw the way he answered Jason's questions. Um, you know, when when Jason brings up the, the flying cocaine circus, right? You know, referencing the shambles that was the, the Bulls franchise in 84 when Michael first came. And instead of laughing it off and sort of, you know, moving on to the next thing, he just jumped right in and like wow. l- described the debauchery <laughs> in no uncertain terms that was going on in that hotel room. And you wow. And you got a sense of, he was bringing the same focus and, and singular commitment to excellence in the interview that he had brought to his, to playing basketball. So we're, we had a man, we were really lucky um, that he uh, never said no to a question, never asked us to soften anything or take anything out. I don't know if people believe us when we say that, but uh, you know, you guys are my pals, whether we were on the air or not, I'm saying not once was there anything censored or asked for us to, to remove? So it was a great ride.
0: Wow. Great ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, look, none of that happens by accident. Um, I mean, he obviously trusted you guys. He, uh, he respected the, the way you were going about it. Uh, I mean like people take for granted that Jason could hand him an iPad and have him watch this or that uh and i'd love to hear you talk about the way he reacted to it but i know like that doesn't happen with that incredible preparation you have to have those clips dialed up so you can hand him that ipad Uh, and he knows you prepped he knows you were ready Uh, i think that's a big part of it um don't like don't you get that feeling that especially he connected with Jason in a way that allowed this to happen?
1: Absolutely, Jason. Um, it was really about credibility in my eyes, establishing from the get-go um, that we're taking this seriously, that we, we we know that he said no for 18 years. For whatever wow. reason, he said yes to us. He's going to do this thing. And if he says yes, he's obviously at a place in his life. This is my perspective that he's comfortable enough in his own skin. He's comfortable enough with where he is in his life. He's got a new wife. He's got new twin daughters along with his three older kids. He's now got a new, his first grandchild has been born. Um, He's, he's been away from the game long enough. He's got a perspective and he's ready to demystify to a certain extent to unpack the mythology um, and to give people a sense of really what he was all about. I think Part of the hesitation was, you know, what, what now has, has been played and over and debated endlessly about why did he have to be so cruel? Why did he have to be so mean? You know, how is it that his teammates are calling him an asshole and a jerk and a bully and all that? What What's that about anyway? Is that necessary for winning? This is a great debate that, that, <laughs> that seems like will rage on well beyond the broadcast of these shows. Um, but I think what Michael felt, was when we pitched to him hey the documentary universe has changed dramatically it used to be you know documentaries were kind of like you know the sport the poor stepchild right you do one tree falling in the forest no big deal now all of a sudden big multi-part documentary events like the OJ doc like how to make a murderer and and, and my pitch actually was we will see the arc of the character you know applying the same, sorts of uh, storytelling technique, as if we were doing a scripted drama. We will see you know, how the seeds are sown with Scotty Burrell, and we will see how you're picking on him, but this is really with intent to elevate his play, which then pays off when he scores 23 points and wins a playoff game with, for you against the Nets. And, 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 and it's all about winning. And then when, you, when we see him break down and get so emotional at the end of episode seven, because he realizes and now acknowledges the sacrifices he's made by just demanding of them everything that he demanded of himself and caring so desperately about winning. So, yes, uh, I think Jason did his homework incredibly well. I mean, a really hard worker, really prepared, as you said, had all of those pieces laid out. Um, Michael immediately understood that, that this guy was, you know, had come to play. And you know, sort of had the same work ethic that he responded to. So um, it was really a pleasure to watch it unfold. And Michael, you know, it wasn't like he was dreading that iPad. You could see the glee, right? <laughs> oh yeah! In the in the uh, in the third and fourth, the second night when it's all about the bad boys, and 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 we're talking about Isaiah and the. And the um, and the Pistons refusal to shake hands. He Ooh. goes like, "Hey man, I don't know what you're showing, but nothing, nothing's going to convince me that you know he's not an asshole, right?"
0: <laughs> and then he sees,
1: and, and then he sees uh, the Gary Payton thing in the '96 championship against Seattle, and he's like. The gloves, yeah. I know <laughs> the, glove. the glove. <laughs> Um and then and then in the final episodes, he he can't wait to hear what Jerry Reinsdorf says about, yes. you know why the Bulls were- broke so, up, um, yeah, yeah. So he relished it, and that's that's a credit to Jason and his preparation, and to Michael and his willingness to to be really open with us.
2: Yeah, I mean, and Mike, I was, you know, you spoke about it. I was curious about what helped, What made you decide on the structure that you used? You know, there wasn't like a chronology. You kind of had these moments where you kind of went forward and then backwards. I mean, what was the basis of that structure?
1: Well, I think critical to the pitch, um, as I mentioned, was a multi-part episode, uh, a multi-episode series, rather, that would be at least, I mean, it could have been six at the minimum, but you know, the original lookbook, as I call it, the pitch document, lays out 10 episodes. Um, okay, so we we committed to making this a broad-based, uh, all-encompassing story, not just Michael, but the championship, um, the six championships in eight years. And there was this treasure trove of unseen footage, and we knew that was going to be really sort of the, uh, the holy grail. Okay, but we also knew it wasn't going to sustain a 10 part episode by itself. So the decision was made to use that as the narrative spine of the series. Um, we just got like a sneak peek of it. I mean, the chronology was um, Curtis and SD kind of ushered me in to, to meet the man behind the curtain. Michael says, yes. I go back to the NBA. They have, like I said, you know, they have it under lock and key. Um, now they want to participate and we're going to forge a partnership between mandalay jump in the nba um and they start relinquishing a little bit of footage at a time and we could see uh, you could just tell how people were going to be mesmerized by it just because i mean look at the cast right this is (laughs) michael scotty dennis phil steve Kerr, on and on and on Um, so we knew even the mundane um everyday pedestrian moments were going to seem revelatory um so we said let's let's just use this as the as the beginning and end, as the framing device, if you will, and use it as a springboard to go back and forth and you know, go back to Jordan's childhood, go back to UNC, and also do backstories on, on the other key characters. I loved that we were able to save Steve Kerr to the ninth episode, when you probably think we're just now kind of up to date with 97 and 98. But we saved that as a little special treat. Um, Steve's one of my favorites. I don't know if you guys have met him, but like that is a... I mean, that's a guy I could vote for public office. I just think he's <laughs> uh, a clear thinker, a um, just a a, a a decent, smart uh, executive who could do whatever he wants to do. So um, yeah, that was the structure, and then then Jason just started plowing away with with his cork board, uh, which I think he's now tweeted. You know, for for months and months, which turned into actually years, he had this cork board where he would just take the three by five cards and move them around and, and figure out, you know, what was going to go in each episode. Um, it's great to see how it evolved in, and um, where we got to by the end of episode 10.
0: Yeah. The storytelling. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't underestimate the greatness of the storytelling Gus, the security guard, oh, yeah. right. You worked that in there last night, Steve Kerr and his father, you work that in there. And that is special to have that many layers to any story. I just really admire the storytelling. Um, I, I wanted to ask you just about watching those 500 hours of film because I'm assuming that you you had seen very little or none of it before you got into the project. What were the what were the moments that really surprised you that you couldn't believe you had this stuff on film?
1: Well, I will admit the uh, the Michael and Scotty Burrell moments were pretty captivating (laughs) because they were so. And so you could just feel like the camera had made itself so much a part of the landscape. I mean, you know, every documentarian's dream is to be a fly on the wall. Um, not literally, but as as close to, uh, to um, unseen as possible. And you know, Andy Thompson, who you know, this is the legend, but it happens to be true. Um, Michael Thompson's brother, Andy, who is also uh, Clay's uncle, um, was the field producer for the NBA, who suggested it to Adam Silver, who back then was the president of NBA wow. Entertainment. Yeah great foresight on, on both of their parts. Like this is going to be history in the making. Cause they knew that Mike, that, that Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson were at odds. And the team was probably going to be broken up after the, the 97, 98 season. So they went to the bulls and they, the story goes that Adam went to Michael and said, look, we're not going to do anything with this. You let us shoot. We'll wait till there's a mutual understanding and an agreement to distribute somehow. And if we never get there, then at least you'll have the greatest home movie. collection ever." <laughs> um, Uh, so you know so so michael went with that but um as we started uncovering it it was the quiet moments i mean i'll tell you one of my favorite moments is michael sitting in a locker stall chomping on a big cigar waving baseball bat talking about trash talk i noticed that i
0: love that yeah (laughs) that was great what was going on there (laughs) what did he have that bat for yeah
1: why why not (laughs) right
0: why not
1: professional baseball player look you know we're all baseball guys. Um, endless speculation has now arisen anew with, between Tito, Tito, who was his manager, of course, in Birmingham, Mike Barnett, who was his coach, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, and on and on and on people speculating about what would or wouldn't have happened if not for the lockout in 95 B- yeah. and and Michael's refusal to, you know, to, to cross the picket line um, and also had it, uh, transpired that he was going to continue playing baseball what was what was the ceiling you know what were the upward limits you know I've heard um, Barnett the hitting coach who arguably has good a perspective as any say I really saw such enormous improvement in one year that you know give him 1500 bats and I think he would have made an MLB roster as a fourth outfielder okay um, <laughs> yeah, amazing. Who, who's, who's gonna argue <laughs>
2: You know, it's funny you mentioned, I I faced uh, Burrell, you know, he pitched for a minute in the Blue Jays organization. And I I think he only had like six or eight innings. And one of the games he pitched, I faced him in St. Catharines for the minor league team. Um, So that was just a little tidbit. I think it was 1991 in the New York Penn League. Doug, you're not
1: going to tell us. How hey, you did?
2: I, back. I I don't know if I remember. I'm trying to figure out the box score, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I had a really good first season, so it, it, it went pretty well.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys bringing this up because I just remembered we're a baseball podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so okay. Mike, I know I know how much you love baseball, and you know you were working with baseball legends long before you worked with Michael. And I've been thinking about this. I, like, I can't think uh, very many baseball legends or baseball players who had that quality that Michael has, where he just knew he could will things to happen out there. Um, It was genius level. Uh, But I'll tell you one who had it. That is Barry Bonds. I've been reading Joan Ryan's great new book on chemistry. It's called Intangibles. Really recommend it. Uh, As I was reading the section on Barry who she compares to Steve Jobs, by the way, I could, like, I could feel that same air of cockiness, confidence, arrogance that he shares with Michael. But they're such different people otherwise. And you're a guy who did a multi-part ESPN series with Barry's, with Barry Bonds too. So I, I'm curious how you would compare them, contrast them, mm. stack That's them a-
1: up. That's a tough one. They are very, very different, as you say, Jason. I, uh, as you were starting to talk about um, the the man, the myth, you know, all that Michael Jordan encompasses in our pop culture landscape, um, and at, if you go to baseball, I'm gonna say the babe and maybe the babe only. You know, people talk about right. um, the greatest sports figures of the 20th century. Um, I think it's Jordan, Ali, and Babe Ruth in one order or another. Yeah, um, I'm with you. there are a lot of guys in baseball, you know, that, that had that aura, but it's harder in baseball. I mean, let's face it, the old adage, you know, <laughs> you fail seven out of 10 times, you still go to the hall of fame. I've it with pitchers more though. Um, I got to know Tom Seaver really well. Um, he was the host of my first job where we did greatest sports legends. Um, in Philadelphia, actually, out of the San Marco restaurant in Ballard, <laughs> <laughs> I've been
0: there <laughs> right
1: away. back um, in the day. Um, and uh, he was getting older, and we were giving him a hard time. Why, why, you know, that fans thing of, why are you continuing to play? Why are you tarnishing <laughs> the record? And he and he got serious for a minute and he said, You guys will never know. It's kind of like what Michael said last night you know, you've, you, you don't know because you've never won. Tom Tom's version was, do you guys – he's holding a baseball and he's rubbing it. He's he's, he's sort of uh, juggling it from one hand to the other. And he looks us in the eye and he gets really serious and he says, do you know what it's like to stand 60 feet away up on a hill with a rock facing a guy with a club and knowing he can't touch you? Do you know how powerful that is? Do you know how intoxicating that is? Of course I'm going to keep doing it for as long as I can. So that was Tom's version. Um, In 2006, as you mentioned, Jason, uh, I got the privilege and the pleasure, (laughs) in quotes, to produce something called Bonds on Bonds on Bonds. Um, It got a lot of scrutiny and a lot of attention, probably the most of anything that I've ever done up until The Last Dance. Unfortunately, much of it was negative um, because that was the same time that The Game of Shadows was coming out. Barry was literally flying back and forth from training camp in Arizona to court um, in San Francisco for the trial right. of his buddy uh, Anderson, um, who he was asked to testify against. Greg Anderson. Right. Greg Anderson and, um, you know, Balco and Diddy or Didn't he? and everybody's assumptions and look at the size of his head and the 73 homers and all. It was really tough. Um I saw, I saw moments of sweetness once when he was with my son. I saw moments of him trying to impart some wisdom to young players around the cage. Um, he he did share that with Michael. He was a, a student of the game and he was a craftsman, um, and he was you know unflinching in his expectations of himself and his teammates. Um, I think Michael had much better bedside manner. Um, for all the chat about, you know, how difficult he was and how much of a tormentor he might've been in the, in the locker room. Um, I mean, you still see him on the planes, playing cards with the guys. You still see him giving the needle. You still see him in episode 10 having that little shooting competition from the hash marks. He has his light moments. Um, I think it was a much more easygoing, um, much more camaraderie. And, and maybe it's unfair to Barry because, as I said, this was crisis central. This was you know, when, when it was all hitting the fan. Um, I've talked to him more recently. Um, his head has shrunk. Um, <laughs> right he is, uh, <laughs> he is uh, happy in his new life. He's in great shape. He's got a relationship with the Giants. Um, he may or may not make the Hall of Fame, which the three of us could talk about endlessly. Yeah. Um, but he's a, much, he's a much kinder, gentler Barry. So, um, you know, um, two very different peas in a pod, I'll say that.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm not sure there's any baseball story that could possibly compare with The Last Dance. But I, I know Doug wants to ask <laughs> me whether there's a baseball movie that's crying to be made. Yeah, I right,
2: mean, Doug? well, I don't know. We have to sign an NDA or something. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, yeah, no.
1: I, yeah, I was... No, we talk- yeah. Hey man, maybe you got some uh, some rich financiers listening, man. No NDAs, man. Yeah. I'll, I'll pick them.
2: Yeah, um, I was curious. Yeah, well, what what figure would you, you know, most like to cover? What story you think needs to be told?
1: So here's my thing about storytelling. Um, uh, the if it's a Michael Jordan figure who is well documented on film and who is so present in our minds that an actor couldn't do him justice then I'm gonna go the doc route if possible. Um, In fact, not to pick on a great filmmaker and a great actor, but Michael Mann made the film Ali with Will Smith, basically impersonating Muhammad Ali. I'd rather watch the documentary footage all day long. So um, the films that we've made, the scripted narrative feature films that we've made, and you've mentioned a lot of them, are mostly based on true stories, but, um, such obscure figures that you can almost treat them like, like fiction. I mean, nobody knew who Radio was. True story in a small town in South Carolina. Nobody knew Coach Carter. I mean, Sam Jackson, all six foot four, plays Ken Carter, who was five foot eight. And <laughs> no, nobody cares um, yeah. because we, you know, we got the tone um, and the basics of the story uh, accurately. Um, Hardball was a movie we did about. Um, you know, baseball in the the south south side of Chicago with Counting Reefs. Anyway, so the two movies that I have scripts for and attachments and excited to tell the stories about, one is kind of based on the story and the aftermath of an Angels pitcher named Nick Adenhart. You guys remember him, right? Sure, (laughs) yeah. Um, This horrible tragedy, Um, a young pitcher for the Angels goes out and Pitches his best game and is tragically killed in a car crash immediately after the game. And then what ensues is that his battery mate from college, his catcher, goes back to their hometown and ends up coaching the team. And an even more unthinkable tragedy transpires, at the end of which this team just bands together magically and wins a state title in the most unthinkable. I mean, just, you know, you, you wouldn't make it up. It would be too... Uh, it would too, be, be be too far-fetched. Very emotional story. It was written by Chris Bauer um, in Sports Illustrated, oh, yeah. a film called morning glory, morning with a U. Um, and another Chris Bauer story I love called One Shot of Forever, which is kind of a baseball Hoosiers. Um, and you know who was on the team was the manager of the Braves, Brian Snicker. Um, and, and another crazy, you know, story of, Unlikely heroes overcoming obstacles um, and, uh, and 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 conquering at the end of the day. So those are the kind of stories I I gravitate to. I must admit I'm a sucker for happy endings. I'm a sucker for inspirational stories that make people feel good. And like you know, what better venue than than baseball for that kind of storytelling.
0: Yeah, well, we can't let Mike go without asking him about a guy who was the first favorite player for both of us growing up in Philadelphia, and that is Dick Allen, Richie Allen. Yeah, uh, gosh. if you think the long dance, I'm sorry, if you think the last dance took a long time to make, how long have they been working on this Dick Allen, Richie Allen movie,
1: Mike? Well, we've already talked about Summer Cat, so before there was. Doug, there was Dick Allen who played the scout in the black hat. Yep. Did. Now, this was the summer of 2020. So that's pretty easy math. We've been shooting 20 years. Wow. We got hundreds of hours of footage. Um, as Jason knows, as a, as a member of the hall of fame, um, Dick Allen missed by one vote, um, in his last year of eligibility, which was 2014. He is up for, um, a vote again by the veterans committee this December. Um, we hope this will be his year. Jason, I have to ask you a question. Um, yes. With the um, postponement of this year's induction, is there any chance that they might postpone that vote and not actually have a Veterans Committee vote in December?
0: Now, I haven't heard anything to that effect, Mike. Um, well, I hope not. I hope not. No, I hope not, too, because there is a, there is a, a schedule, for which committees vote in which years, and there's a rhythm to it, right. um, and so I wouldn't think that would happen. But I, I also know that um, it's certainly possible that next year could be a really crowded year. Well, there's only I'm well, well
1: actually, look at it right now. You have Derek um, Walker, um, Ted Simmons, um, Ted Marvin Simmons, Mark Miller. Okay, so it's and and it's it's possible that nobody's going to get in. From, the, from this class, shillings getting close. He's 7%. I think,
0: I think he gets in.
1: Okay. So but probably him because Barry and – I don't know how you feel. I feel like Barry and Roger aren't going to get in if they're going to get in until their final year. So it may just be yep. – so, so probably Kurt by himself. So that's five. Um, look, you know, I – like you, I have – well, a little bit differently than you because I've become good friends – with Dick Allen. I mean, I even stopped calling him Richie. <laughs> <Out of respect. laughs> Truth be told, I call him Wampum, which is the little town in Western Pennsylvania that he's from. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's 78 years old. Um, I think the big thing in terms of his candidacy um, is to remember what he endured in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the minor leagues, in a totally segregated world. Um, and in Philadelphia, in a very racially polarized city in the sixties when Frank Rizzo ran it like a police state. Um, The famous fight he had with Frank Thomas, the booze that he was subjected to, um, to be able to perform at a level. And and you guys know um, there's a whole different um, perspective now, thanks to modern analytics. And I think um, if you guys agree, my my understanding is if you're going to take one um, metric and use it as an all encompassing uh, source of analysis, it's, OPS plus. Would you guys agree with that?
0: It it certainly gives you a big picture story and comparison of every player who ever lived.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so from sixty four to seventy three, basically for a full decade, um, if you go by OPS plus, Dick Allen was the best hitter in baseball. It was basically Mays, Aaron, and Allen. Uh, he won an MVP. He won two home run titles. He was on the All Star teams seven times. Um, he uh, he only, you know brought baseball back to chicago i mean i've talked to so many of those guys goose gossage talks about how dick allen taught him more about baseball than anybody's played against or with um and Schmidt mike schmidt was his teammate when dick allen came back to philly and now i know michael is very much in favor of his candidacy so look he was a special player um with prodigious power um who uh, I think played an important role in both baseball history and, and and um, the integration of the game, you know, that second generation of players who come after Jackie. Um, and I'm hoping it's time. Yeah. I mean, he's powerful.
2: I, I, I got to review a book on, uh, on Dick Allen and uh, wow. I mean, just learning about Little Rock, like you said, just basically integrating this, this town and playing in that left field where he was very close access to fans and the, the threats and, Uh, Yeah. You know, know, really powerful stuff. And, uh, but Alan, yeah, he just, you know, pioneered a lot and yeah, I mean, it seems like in time we'll see what, what happens with him. You you
0: know, Megan Montemuro just wrote a piece about Dick Allen's hall of fame chances in the athletic just a few days ago and talked to me for it. And a, a point I made was, you know, if in his time on the writer's ballot, uh, he was viewed as a guy who just didn't have the volume, right? Who didn't have the counting numbers. Um And yet now I think he's really helped. People mention Harold Baines all the time. I don't think he, Harold Baines is the cop. I think Edgar Martinez and the more I think about it, Larry Walker are yep. are really good indicators of how voting has changed and could really help Dick Allen. But – I've also been a member of those committees, those veteran committees. And, you know, the writers now have really come a long way in how they look at modern metrics. I don't know that those committees have. And so I really don't know how to handicap it. But I guess I need to ask you, is this film going to get made either way at this point? Yes.
1: yes. Um, the truth is, Jace, it was never intended to be about this. I mean, this is about a 50 plus year relationship you know little kid growing up in the suburbs just just gloms on to this rookie sensation his first year when he won rookie of the year of the national league in 1964 was my first year as a fan um it was a it was a kind of a seminal year in my life my parents got divorced and there was a lot of upheaval and all i all i could do was focus on this guy And then, of course, the losing streak. For those of you who aren't as psychically scarred as we are, the Phillies had a a six-and-a-half game lead with 12 to play. They lost 10 in a row. They finished one game behind the Cardinals. Dick Allen hit his way through that streak. He didn't miss a beat. He won the Rookie of the Year. But the three reporters, Messrs. Conlin, Merchant, and Hockman, just buried him just, just, just tormented him and twisted his words in a way that kind of made him an enemy of the people. Um, so, you know, he, he, he carried on. Um, I stayed as his, you know, I thought biggest fan only to find out that everybody of my generation loved him the same way I did. And then I followed him and I met him, uh, in Los Angeles and I met him in Chicago and I met him in Oakland when he was playing out his last year. And I was going to Stanford. Um, and when he came back to Philly, and so we've had this relationship, and so the film is about—it's about race relations and the role sports has played in the civil rights movement, which of course I touched on a lot with Hank Aaron. It's about hero worship. It's about unlikely friendships. It's about baseball as you know um, the 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 backdrop of our summer and um, this 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 uh, intergenerational bond. Um, so the Hall of Fame thing just happened in 2014 when he was nominated and all of a sudden kind of like the last dance i thought huh this could be the spine of the film because all that other stuff i just mentioned is sort of you know it's kind of soft right it's not a narrative thread it's not a what's going to happen with the beginning middle and end and so now i've decided to position the hall of fame pursuit which has been ongoing for you know a couple of decades as the spine of the film um, we will go through the next vote, um, whether he gets in or not, and the film will come out, you know, in 2021 or 2022 at the latest. Um, obviously, I'm rooting for a happy ending.
2: Yeah, Dick. Yeah, just just a, a little different A uh, question that's been pressing. Is there anyone, with respect to The Last Dance, uh, anyone you wanted to have interviewed that didn't interview? Like, well, who was that, like, missing X factor uh, that you couldn't what- get to sit down?
1: Doug, we did 108 interviews, um, 105 plus three for Michael. Um, our, you know, our batting average was about 90, well, 97. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, logistics made it tough because there's so much going on with interviews everywhere and archival footage and editing and and deadlines. You know, John Stockton was the last interview we got, which was right in the in the thick of the pandemic, and he was in Washington State. So none of us could fly, but we got a local producer and a local crew and we needed somebody from Utah to be the storyteller to help us through those two consecutive finals. Um, We would have loved Carl Malone, never could quite connect. Um, We would have loved Spike Lee, never could quite connect with Spike, who at one point was kind of circling the project and might have been a director. Uh, Spike's been very gracious talking about the film and acknowledging um, its merits and talking about how much he's learned from it. A handful of others. I mean, there's so many members of the media. I guess it's a testament to the popularity of the show that we've had maybe a dozen guys have either reach out to us or have their teams reach back to us and say, How come you didn't interview me?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just the only thing that's missing from the last dance, of course, is my pickup basketball game against Michael Jordan in the Arizona there we go. Fall League. Okay, that that would have been the absolute whipped cream on top of the cherry, on top of the ice cream, on top of the whipped cream. But well, how um, would it go? How would it go? It, it went well. I'll have to direct you to our previous podcast of expressing <laughs> the victory that we had in five on five basketball. I'm always afraid to say it because I keep thinking Jordan might show up uh, outside with a basketball in hand uh, just to keep me quiet. But we did manage. You know, we had Lyle Mouton. And Curtis Pride, who had a lot of college basketball experience, so. But okay. of course, if he really wanted to beat us, I'm sure he would have destroyed us. But he did let us win, so I, I'll take that as something.
0: I, I want to say this is the third time that that game has come up in this podcast in the <laughs> last month. This is going to have more parts than the last dance. <laughs>
1: Oh man! Oh well, <laughs> got to take it where you can get it. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mike, I, I I I want to ask you before we wrap this up, just where where you are on the return of baseball this year. I know how big a fan Oof. you are. I wow. know how much you would love to watch baseball games again. If you if you've seen some of the health and safety protocols that were in that story that were broken by Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick of The Athletic over the weekend. You know that baseball's going to look strange if it comes back under these conditions. How do you feel about
1: that? Well, there's a, there's a lot of um, different versions of, quote, how do you feel about that? How do I feel about baseball looking very different? Fine. It's weird to think of guys in uniforms sitting in the seats behind the dugout with four seats between them and two rows between them. Um, <laughs> It's really weird to think of no sunflower seeds being fat. <laughs> <spat>. um, <laughs> I don't want. <laughs> and all the precautions and no high fives and no chest bumps and everything else. I can handle all of that. In fact, I would think that this year already has a big fat asterisk. If it's 82 games instead of 162, this is such a great opportunity to do some of the experimentation that people have been clamoring for. Now, I don't know if you guys are the clamorers because, um, you know, like me, we're all kind of old school, but, but I, I don't know, maybe cause I have kids, um, whatever it is. I, I really like I'm a proponent of the pitch clock. Um, I don't know if Bob Costas got into it with you, but he and I have done the math and talked about how you could save 20 minutes off a game without really challenging it and getting it to the point where like how many times in a basketball game does a 24 second clock actually go off? Once you're conditioned that you got 20 seconds to throw the ball, you're going to do it. You're going to do it 97 out of 100 times. Maybe you'll get two or three violations in the course of the game. Anyway, I think it's time for experimentation. I think there are many things that Rob would like to do as the commissioner that the Players Association is precluding him from. I'm not sure why. Um, I want to. I, I want to make an unsolicited uh, testimony on behalf of Rob Manfred. Um, people say, "Oh, he's a lawyer, and he's just you know in there trying to make a deal." You guys probably know Rob personally. He's a great guy, and he shares Bud Selig's love of the game way over and above, you know, the business and the deal making. Um, I I've, I've, I've met Rob in social settings. Smart, sensitive, caring, good guy. Uh, a guy we'd call a mensch. Um, I think he wants this in the worst way. I think it's unfortunate that baseball is kind of hanging out its dirty laundry now, right? It would have been great if the financial package could have been agreed on so that all we were worried about now were the safety precautions. Right. But, but then I look at the other side of the table and, and I, I, <laughs> I look at Blake Snell with his, with his, with his unforgettable four. Ford- <laughs> and I say, um, was that, okay, this is cynical. So you guys may say, <laughs> I'm critical. like, was he put up to that by somebody in the players association? Does he did, was he really speaking his heart or was this just sort of something to get out there to show how set the players are in sticking to the agreed upon relationship? Because it just feels really tone deaf to me. And I just got to believe with the understanding that 40% of the revenues come from fans and all the other, uh, ancillary revenue streams, there's gotta be a middle ground. Doesn't there? I mean, you know, half of 40 is 20, uh, it doesn't have to be the dreaded salary cap. And by the way, I know this is just fever of consciousness and I'll shut up in a second. But The dreaded salary cap that has that worked out so terribly for NBA players. I mean, there is a world in which everybody can thrive if there's a genuine partnership between the players and owners.
0: You you know, I was on the uh, lead with Kavitha last week and we talked about this and here's how I put it. Um, if you had just come back from a trip to, say, Mars, right, and you didn't know the history of these two sides and the way that stuff like this has been perceived about all the mistrust through the years, you might look at this and say, wow, that's a pretty good concept. It's not a normal year. Let's find some unique way to hand out the money. But because it's who it is, us Earthlings know that particular proposal was not going to happen. I also, though, think there is a middle ground. Don't ask me what it is. (laughs) Right. Yeah, what (laughs) is it? I I mean, the way it's been framed, there's no clear middle ground. But in the next couple of weeks, it's going to happen. There's there's going to be so much pressure applied to oh, yeah. get a deal done. Isn't it a disaster? Isn't it worse than losing the World Series in 1994 if you don't
1: over money? Yep. So a, a couple of stats that I, I maybe these aren't right, but like this is, this would be what 17 months between baseball games, which is twice the hiatus in 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 uh, 94 95. Number one, and didn't it take like twelve years for attendance to creep back up to the pre-strike levels? It's just like, it'd be devastating. It just, it just can't,
0: can't happen. Yeah, and it's, you know, you can't even measure it in in economics. You can't even measure it in attendance. Baseball has never held the same place in the American soul that it held before that World Series got canceled. Yeah. Right, and yeah. this would be worse. Yeah, it would. Yes. It
2: would be devastating, and you know, just a little, you know, backstory from just being in the players' association all the years I was playing, and and yeah, the salary cap is is like it's that line in the sand. It's more in the sand. It's like in blood, and yeah, this is a like you said, unprecedented times where you have to really th- rethink everything because you're simple goal has to be to get the game back in as safe a way as possible. And then you kind of go from there and you try to work it out in 2021. Uh, I think that's the the, the way you have to do it. And as, as a player, what is challenging and I've been just thinking about this personally is The good side of being part of this union all these years has been this idea that you have to think beyond your generation. You have to think forward and you have to respect the people that handed it to you. Uh, Those are sort of woven into this indoctrination of being part of something. But uh, when you look at it at a micro level, which we are now because as a player you're thinking of your own literally survival – uh, you start to see things differently and weigh it differently, and that sort of selfish side starts to play a, a role, and it's very understandable. So I don't know like how they're going to marry that idea of well, let me, you know, okay, I'm going to sacrifice my economics for this year when I may not even have a career next year. Uh, a lot of players aren't, you know, Blake Snell. A lot of players are on one year deals or don't have a contract, and are they going to, you know, punt a whole season? Uh, knowing that there's no certainty, so to think about that, what many players in the past did do that they said, "I'm going to lock and strike. I'm going to go on strike, and I may not ever see this money again, but it's good for the future." So that is the collision we're facing now, and yeah. uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be tricky. But I I do think they get it done. I do think uh, I think the real battle is gonna come next year.
1: Well, uh, I'm happy to <laughs> defer the battle for a year. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know, it's- Rob said with everybody jockeying for position and there's UFC now and there's NASCAR and there's going to be PGA. But like, as Rob said, baseball is the everyday game. It's here. It's, you know, it's like the ambient track of our summer. As I said earlier, it's just like, you know, mornings are box scores and look at, um, you know, for us out here on the West coast, the afternoon, first pitch times. And it's like, I just can't imagine. Um, it's already been, uh, what a month and a half. And, um, Let's get to
0: it. Yeah. And let's uh, let's let Mike Tolan go on with his life, Doug. (laughs) We're way over the amount of time that Mike allotted to us. So, Mike, this has been incredible, man. Uh, Next time you're in Philly – Assuming either of us ever leave the house again, we need to have dinner. I want to talk to you about the last dance for like six hours. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: we always have plenty to talk about. We haven't even mentioned Larry Anderson's name. Oh my goodness. That's We first bonded, Dougie, in 19... 19- <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm writing a book with Larry Anderson. So we thought it was called... Remember the name of it, Jason?
2: No. It's something with she- it, only? Imm- immaturity. Yeah. is
0: that something yeah. That, yeah. that... Immature forever, yeah. right? Okay.
1: Yeah. Right. You're only young once. dot, 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 but you can be immature forever. <laughs> way to go. Way to go L.A.
0: Yep. That's him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Mike was going to write that book. Then he, all, then he turned it over to me and then it never actually <laughs> got done at all. I don't know what that says about the two of us, but right. one of these decades, I'll, I'll one a- spoiler alert, we are going to bring Mike back at the end of this show for a little Field of Dreams talk. But for now... Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of this podcast, Listener Trivia. It's our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. We'll tell you how that works momentarily. But here's this week's question. It comes from a listener named Robbie Craven. Uh, his Twitter handle is r c. Underscore I I I underscore. Oh, (laughs) so it's not RG3, it's RC3 (laughs) with some underscores in there. Okay. (laughs) He's got a fun and what's actually a a nice, timely, pertinent question. Here we go. Doug, you ready? I'm ready. Only two guys in history have ever played in a Final Four. He's referring to men's hoops and a World (laughs) Series. Got two guys in history, Final Four and a World Series, and they both came from a small town in Indiana. One guy is easily forgotten. The other guy, he says, was a five or six-time MLB All-Star. Can we name them? So, uh, this is fun, Doug. You know, I've got so many of these useless facts like that are like ping-ponging around my brain. Almost sure I know the easily forgotten guy, but not the other guy who's the all-star. I, the The obscure guy I think has to be Tim Stoddard. I'm pretty sure he pitched for the Orioles in the World Series once upon a time, and played at NC State maybe with David Thompson. That like that sounds familiar to me. Um, so Tim Stoddard would be one guess, and then who is the other? Uh, I can't decide. Maybe it's Dave Winfield because I know he played hoops, uh, I think, at Minnesota. Could be Dick Groat. He played basketball at Duke, although slightly before Coach K. Uh, could be Kenny Lofton. I feel like he, I know he played at Arizona. Might even have been with Steve Kerr. Uh, who came from Indiana? I'm going to go with Tim Stoddard and Dick Groat. What, what do you think, Doug?
2: Wow, that's yeah, the Indiana really threw me for a loop because now I realize I probably don't know this at all. Uh I mean, yeah, Kalo always stood out for me. Uh what about like Danny Ainge? Didn't he didn't he didn't he do something? Was he in the World Series team? He played in the big leagues
0: with the Blue Jays, but yeah. he did not ever get to didn't the World he, Series, uh, I don't
2: think. Maybe he did. He might have. You know, it's like oof. Well, the other guy I thought I realized the World Series Terrell Lowry. You remember him? He was uh, outfielder oh, yeah. with the Cubs, but I don't. He certainly didn't get to the World Series. I don't know if he played for someone else sneakily, uh, but he was a really good basketball <laughs> player. Okay, so I yeah. So you have okay. So can I just add to? I mean, Winfield. He's not from Indiana, right? He's not from Indiana. He played in the Big Ten. He could be. Okay. I don't think so, but he could be. And was he only a five- or six-time All-Star? It seemed like he was like a 13-time (laughs) All-Star. Right.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, he didn't look it up. He just guessed it was a five- or six-time All-Star. Oh,
2: man. All right. (laughs) so Just take uh, a guess. All right. Let's say say Kenny Lofton. uh, I think that's a good answer. And, oh, man. And let's say Lofton and Danny Ainge.
0: Lofton and Danny Ainge, and I've got Tim Stoddard, Dick.
2: Grew, yeah, actually, uh, I'm very confident Lofton because I think he's from Gary, Indiana. Now that I think about
0: uh-huh. it. Oh, really? Okay. Uh- you know, I know I'd been asked this question before. Um, I don't know if we have it right or not. We certainly have enough answers out there. Uh, We better call in the evil mayor of Starkville, Mayor Cam, to give us the answer. Well, it's so apropos that we had Mike on today because you guys are like Jordan and Pippen because combined, you guys
1: win championships. It is Stoddard and Lofton. (laughs) And why don't we go ahead and take a brief look back in history when Lofton sent the Giants of the World Series in 2002. In the right field, a base hit. The throw. Through to the plate. The Giants
0: are going to the World Series. Wow, I was there for that. What a moment. Joe Buck on the call. Um, you know, Doug, whether we get these questions right, which has not happened much, or wrong, which happens a lot, we always use our questions to inspire a fun topic of conversation. So I thought it's the perfect week to talk about basketball and baseball. This would be my question for you. Which league, the NBA or Major League Baseball, has the better shot to make it back and start playing again?
2: Yeah, I have to go MLB. I mean, Major League Baseball has so many elements that sort of fit into the protocols, you know, for safety purposes, right? You have your outside. uh, There's a lot of social distance naturally built into the game. And uh, and there's no question that that is going to be the difference maker. You play on hoops. I mean, you're you know fouls and you know close quarters and intimacy, and plus you're playing indoors. I just think there's a lot of things working against the NBA right now. So I see baseball making a, a strong push to get back. You know, sometime this summer. Will it happen? We'll see. But uh, I know they're making very serious plans for it.
0: Yeah, you know, these two sports are so different. Uh on and off the court or the field. Uh, let's, let's think about off first. In baseball, what do we have going on right now? We have these these deep, troublesome negotiations. We have Blake Snell and players speaking out. We have controversy. We have fights over money. In basketball, you know what you have? You have Adam Silver. <laughs> like, don't you have this sense? Adam Silver will just figure this out, let everybody know what to do, and then they'll just do it. So, so that's very different. And then, just as you just talked about, uh, when it comes to actually playing the games, here's the way I would look at this. If it's possible to play basketball, then it's obviously possible to play baseball. But it can be possible to play baseball, but not play basketball. There's so much contact, as you were just talking about. There's so many people that handle the ball, the same ball. And, you know, I'm... I'm looking for stuff to watch. I was watching an old Warriors game over the weekend, a classic game, and I noticed Steph Curry push his mouthpiece back into <laughs> his mouth. Time, yeah. With, yeah, he's got this thing hanging out. He pushes it into his mouth with his right hand, and one second later starts dribbling the basketball <laughs> with the same hand. And then they pass that ball around. Right. So try to socially distance that. Nah, no, no. Oh. No chance
2: Ooh. at all. Yeah. I, I mean, but just, you know, you think about how many habits we've had to kind of re-engineer in our lives, but we're at least mostly in some, you know, if we're in our controlled environment, what, you know, home or somewhere. But just imagine at the pace of, of in a professional athletics uh, environment, right, where you're, and, <laughs> and you're dependent on all these other people and you have all these habits. You spit, you know, spit out seeds, you chew gum, you, you know, whatever it is, you, you know, you, put, I don't know, get dirt out of your eye. I, it's it's going to take like a whole like reconstruction of your mindset even in baseball where where there is so you know, so much less social distance or so much more distance between yeah uh, plays and athletes
0: look i read all 68 pages of that MLB health oh. and safety report <laughs> or proposal over the weekend and uh everybody has to retrain themselves to do everything yep. and then they all have to do it exactly right every day. And not just 1,500 players, but thousands of other people. Yep. Uh, it it boggles your mind to think about the difficulty of making this happen. I sure hope they can. All right. Just a couple of quick things to get to. Uh, one, the latest column in my ongoing series on the Strangest but truest games and moments of the 21st century. And what the, the I did the other day was the craziest and most hilarious yet. It was the day that Gene Segura, who was then of the Brewers, stole first base. That was back in 2013. <laughs> and I had so much fun doing this, man. I, like, I laughed out loud so many times just typing in the quotes. <laughs> uh, Brian Anderson talking about... Le- Reminded him of Laverne and Shirley at the beer assembly line. You don't get that stuff very often. No, no. So, but I, I think it's all just proof that when the earth spins backwards, weird stuff ensues. So um, we're, we're, we need to play the play-by-play of this, but maybe I just should try to explain it because yeah. it's it pretty wild. Gene Segura leads off this inning with a single, steals second, tries to steal third, somehow ends up back on first. Miraculously... Mysteriously, the umpires <laughs> let him stay there, even though he's already broken like four rules. Then he tries to steal second again. <laughs> uh, now he's out trying to steal that base he's already stolen. It's an absolute <laughs> madhouse. So let's hear the great Brian Anderson trying to describe this. Segura goes,
1: pitches outside, throw to second, not in time. Segura with a stolen base. Wow, what a nice throw by Cast- Castillo. And Segura takes off, and he is going to be picked off. And Braun able to get to second base, but Segura is out. Wait a minute. He tagged Segura. Segura left the bag. (laughs) Segura's going to first. Well, you can't swap places. No, He absolutely cannot. Well, they were both at second base, and the guy that originally had second base is going to be saved. Now Braun's out. (laughs) Now Segura's at first base.
0: He can keep going backwards, can he? <laughs> I mean, Braun's eliminated from the play at that point. Right.
1: And the old saying is, you can't steal first. You can't go backwards. I think he just did. The problem the, the Cubs had is they should have tagged Braun. He would have been out. Segura left the bag. Tagged
2: Segura right away. He would have been out. So tag, tag. There. Now, now they're both out anyway yeah, right there.
0: Right. He put the tag He put him. the tag on him the second time. He should be out. Absolutely. Because he did the right thing. And he goes, and he goes, and the throw to second,
1: <laughs> and he's out. So the first time he tried to steal second, he was safe. The second time, he's out. One of the craziest base-running innings.
2: Oh, my oh, goodness. Yeah. I just can't even breathe listening <laughs> <laughs> to
0: Right, oh. like poor Brian Anderson. He uh, he told me that panic actually set in <laughs> while he was trying to describe this. He said at one point he said I was just spitting out words that made no sense <laughs> because everything was backwards. So he he was oh. tremendous trying to talk about what it was like to actually call the play. Like the part that they referred to where they can't swap places. There literally is a like a second there where. Ryan Braun's on second base, Segura's on first base, and you know, a few seconds earlier, that was reversed. Segura was on second, and Braun was on first, and he's saying, "You can't just swap places. No, no, you can't. You can't do that." It could be like so a double
2: funny. pinch hitting, you know, a double pinch runner. You pinch run for each other. I don't know. It'd be a very interesting. <laughs> right,
0: that's exactly right. You know, I also talked to Tim O'Driscoll. He was the official scorer. And here is his mess. Uh, The Major League Baseball computers would not believe this, wouldn't believe that a guy on second base was now back on first base. And then, wait, now you're telling the computer that he's out stealing a base the computer thought he was actually still standing on? (laughs) So he told me the computer was beeping and it was freezing. Uh, So and just to have the computer allow them to keep entering more plays in the game they had to just make up a play that never happened they told the computer he was caught stealing third base third. instead of second and that was a lie doug but it's just like it was one more time in baseball when that thing that was not possible somehow became possible and wreaked havoc so i would love to hear your thoughts oh Wow. Um,
2: I Well, I tried to think about this and try to turn it into a positive and, and just sort of <laughs> cut through the confusion. And and so I came up with a couple of theories, if you break it into pieces. For example, um, the, the whole idea of going backwards, right, this whole strange phenomenon. So I have to reference Back to the Future with Marty McFly. Marty McFly was able to go back in time, back and and end up in the future. Okay, that wow. actually happened. Uh, so if we just sort of take the next step <laughs> in the space-time continuum, you know, which I, of course I'm a I'm a fan of all the NASA studies, I go to a Dr. Joel Lebowitz from Rutgers University and quote him as the arrow of time. Yes, so the arrow of time expresses the fact that in the world about us, the past is distinctly different from the future. Milk spills, but it doesn't unspill. Eggs splatter but it does not unsplatter. Waves break, but do not unbreak. We always grow older, never younger. These processes all move in one direction in time. They're called time irreversible, and they define the arrow of time. Uh, So we can get into all these concepts of entropy and all that, but I think the key is understanding that, okay, Marty McFly proved you can go backwards in time. You can challenge the arrow. And all could be right with the world, even when it's completely wrong in a scoring sense. Uh, So, and the other part of it that made me think is this, (laughs) you talk about theft. I stole a lot of bases. Um, I'm proud of it. But then I guess looking back, I did. That means I stole a lot of things. And the idea Uh of first, it's it's two things. Did you steal what was rightfully yours? All right. So the fact that he stole second, then he went back and then tried to steal it again. I don't know. It's like If that's your property, uh, maybe there's some loophole. You know, I remember watching the movie Fish Call Wanda, where uh, uh, Kevin Klein says to John Cleese, what are you doing robbing your own home, right? So that's sort of one concept. But then my wife, having a legal background and attorney, I said, why don't I go to the federal code here? And I realized that there is a federal guideline discussing the receipt of stolen property. So was he in receipt of stolen property? Uh, you have to decide if it was his in the first place, because he was effectively stealing what he already stole and then got caught stealing. So maybe there's some mafia movie we could reference on that, but I, I have to think of it. So, so in, in summary, I'd say this, you know, Segura, <laughs> uh, in stealing second and then trying to give it back, that is an act of charity. That is an act of kindness. That we have to recognize. He was. He felt bad, and he tried to go back and right his wrong by going all the way back to first bait and relinquishing the stolen goods. We have to honor that. Uh, that should be. He should file that on his taxes as a charitable contribution. And and from there, once we <laughs> sum this up, we have exactly what we need to break down the Gene Sakura uh, issue uh, without any confusion.
0: Really, I'm more confused now than I was before you started talking. <laughs> <laughs> Just read the column. Like, this is guaranteed to make you laugh. Um, One thing I did was I put out a call on Twitter for nominations for the next Strange But True Classic in my series. So uh, let's do that here, too, on the podcast. If you're listening and you have one of these that's from the 21st century that you think just fits the pattern here, just tweet it at me and include the hashtag SBTclassics. Got it. it? Love it. Yeah. Now, you dropped a lot of cinematic references there, and that is appropriate because guess what? Uh oh. I am not letting go of my contention that you have never been more wrong about anything than when you called Field of Dreams overrated. So it's time to bring back our friend Mike Tolan, baseball lover, great filmmaker. Doug, I think we should just ask him and go with that. Okay? So, Mike, give us your review of Field of Dreams.
1: Well, it's, it's always tough when you talk about best baseball movies. You know, I have, I have, I have my list of about half a dozen or so. Um, Field of Dreams is solidly in there for a lot of reasons. Number one, spectacular book. Shoeless Joe Kinsella, one of my favorite books. Um, I was in my 30s. I was in New York. I was single. Um, it just spoke to me. It was when I was discovering Roger Angel um, and, you know, his, the business of caring. And um, really just felt like it, it struck a nerve for me. So then they make this movie, which I didn't even know that it was based on that book because the name was different. Um, but uh, I take a girlfriend that I was courting and hoping would turn into something more serious and she says, we're going to a baseball movie. I said, oh, honey, it's really it's really, a, it's really a father and son movie. Um, and we, we realized one of the first incompatibilities was that she liked to get there super early, get popcorn, get sodas, settle in. This is before there were reserve seats. I like to get there maybe for the last trailer, but maybe as the curtain's just going up on the <laughs> Well, this is the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And it's packed because the movie's just come out and Kevin Costner and it's getting great reviews. And so we can't even sit together. She's sitting in front of me. <laughs> so that's a bad start. Oh, so had yeah. a you know, movie oh, she didn't, didn't even want to go to. Um, the movie unfurls. I have no idea if she's asleep, if she's interested <laughs> right. in porn, if this is going to be the end of our relationship. So, you know, the unforgettable catch happens, right? Between Kevin's character and his dad at the end of it. And the credits start to roll, and she, her head slowly turns. Now she's been dealing with this baseball guy and hearing all this nonsense forever. <laughs> now she's just been subjected. What's it going to be? She turns around with a face full of tears, and she puts out her hand and holds my hand and says, now I get it.
2: <laughs>
1: oh. Oh. Dougie, I rest my case. Come on, man. Yeah,
0: five stars, Iconic. right?
2: At least i will I will always use the word iconic that's as far as i usually go <laughs> uh I, I i will not go into my soliloquy but uh i I do appreciate it I think it does touch people uh in that personal way i i felt there was there was ho- some holes for me there was just some holes for me and some disconnects i just i wasn't feeling and um but i I respect it I do respect it and i will I will maintain that because it does have that type of impact as you said. And especially I lost my father in 2002, the last game of the season. And it was magical. I, I got my 1000th hit that day. And I say magical in a, in a way of connection. And uh, I, I had 998 hits last game of the season. I got three hits that day and my father passed away exactly when the game ended, you know, thousand miles away. Um, so, wow. I, so I understand, you know, that the cool. power of that, and it doesn't have to be narratively perfect or you know, you know, fit well into you know, some memorable acting or all these things to, to really speak to people. So, I, I do respect it, it's it's um, and for that reason, I will always listen into Jay and his effort to convert me, <laughs> and I will, I will always come down on the side of respecting it. And so, and, now, <laughs> so, so
1: now that we heard this. So now that we heard the soliloquy that we weren't going to hear, thank you, Doug, very much. You yes. gave me the opportunity to go into my BlackBerry. Yes, it's still on a BlackBerry. Oh, and wow. find my favorite passage, which that night after Robbie said to me, now I get it. And we went back to my apartment and I said, here, I want to read something to you. And it said, I mentioned Roger Angel when we were on together before. Um, I still think he's the poet laureate of baseball. With no disrespect to present company, um, oh no <laughs> and 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 in his in his book five seasons which was an anthology of all his baseball writings in the new yorker um the passage he wrote after carlton fisk's home run in game six of the 75 world series he talks about how you know this this uh the errant path of a, of a of a distant spheroid sends you know certain men you know dancing and screaming with joy and others you know into mourning. Um, I'm going to abridge it. Um, And he talks about how silly that is on the face of it, but, you know, how people, you know, I call it the business of caring. Um, what What he says is what is left out of this calculation, it seems to me, is the business of caring, caring deeply and passionately, really caring, which is a capacity or an emotion that has almost gone out of our lives. And so it seems possible that we have come to a time when it no longer matters so much what the caring is about. How fla- frail or foolish is the object of that is concern as the long, I'm sorry, I'm botching it. How frail, or f- how frail or foolish is the object of that concern as long as the feeling itself can be saved. Naivete, the infantile and ignoble joy that sends a grown man or woman to dancing and shouting with joy in the middle of the night over the haphazard flight of a distant ball seems a small price to pay for such a gift. <laughs>
0: There you go. Very well People said. People will cry, Doug. People will most definitely cry at that movie. Yes. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Mike,
2: you're the best. Well done. Beautiful. Thanks, Mike, for taking the time. Really, talk, really appreciate guys. it. Let's
0: do it again
1: soon. All right. Appreciate Pleasure it. having
0: you. Uh, visit us here in Starkville, Mike. All the best. All right.
1: You got it.
0: There you go. I, I feel like this is settled. Field of dreams. <laughs> Great, special, moving. We get it. Do you get it?
2: Yeah, a special, great, uh, in a iconic. I have to use iconic. I just have to stick to that word. <laughs> that's a good
0: thing. I will stick to that word. Respect and okay. Iconic. <laughs> All right, just stay away from overrated, and you'll be fine. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Starkville. Uh, let's remind you again that Starkville is now available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe to Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, everywhere podcasts are sold. And, of course, you can still find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. And if you'd like to read my work or Doug's work or the work of any of our amazing writers, there is no better sports writing being done in the world than you'll find in the Athletic. And we're now offering a 90-day free Trial. So if you've thought about subscribing, you can try us out for free for the next three months. Just go to theathletic.com slash 90 free days. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. Here's what you need to do. Submit a trivia question. Doug and I will get it wrong. Uh, And then we will use it to inspire a fun topic of conversation in the podcast. You can email us your trivia questions at starkville at or you can tweet them at us. Uh, Doug, where would they find you?
2: Well, piece of cake at Doug Glanville, D O U G G L A N V I L L E.
0: And you can tweet at me at Jason with a Y S T, J A Y S O N S T. Just hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville Q S. Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Mike Tolan for the awesome last dance stories. Thanks to the mayor, Cam, for producing. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next week on Starkville.